morning. Such great worship. I love the sound of hearing your voices. There, there is no sweeter sound than a congregation at worship. So praise God. He is here. He's in our midst. And um, I want us to just have this moment. Dismiss the children. So um, we love your countenance here, though. And um, last week, I don't know if you saw it, like the urban promise rose were swaying arm in arm. And so were our children. <laughs> so when, that, when the adults, when we catch up to them, that's when we know we're really cooking, right? <laughs> um, that's when we know God's spirit has really taken over. Um, let's yield ourselves up to God by taking his words upon our lips in prayer and praying together the Lord's prayer together and then moving into a season of prayer. Um, let's pray together uh, using the words Jesus taught us that we would have never invented ourselves. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our gracious, loving Father in heaven, we praise you for your majesty as the Lord of the whole universe. We remember with awe who you are this day. And you are mighty, O God, and yet you also are tender and affectionate, that you know each one of us by name. You know the things that press upon our hearts and our concerns, so we can call you not only the one whose name is to be hallowed, but we're like children invited to crawl up into the lap of our God. Lord, if you had not described yourself this way, we would have never dared. But we thank you that you come with intimate nearness. Oh Lord, you come to give power to the faint that those who wait upon you will renew their strength. You take us into your arms. You bend down to nourish us. We simply reach up to receive your love. And then we find that your loving kindness is even better than life itself, and we find our desires satisfied in you. Lord, um, as we stand now in awe of your holy name, we also pray you would renew in us a humble spirit of repentance. Oh Lord, we thank you that in Jesus, we find that repentance is not piling on criticism against ourselves, but it is the unburdening of our souls and the removing of all that does not beautify and all that mars your image in us in some degree. And so we pray you would cleanse us of hard hearts, of hard words, cleanse us of any spiritual apathy, cleanse us of simply times where we go through the motions, not noticing you and not even noticing others. Anoint us anew with your living spirit, Christ. We pray that you would inspire within us a fresh spark of concern for others who do not know you. Fill us, Lord, with a holy passion for others. Give us the ability to witness to the power of your name that we have come to love and call upon. Lord Jesus, today also we pray against the kingdoms of darkness. We pray against the kingdoms that would assert themselves against the kingdom of Christ, sometimes by violent force. We pray, O oh Lord, aware today that there are many nations, many locations where to gather in your name is to invite persecution. We think of places in India or North Korea or China 
where the movements of your people are monitored with the intent to intimidate and suppress. We ask that you would not only give them boldness, but Lord, that you might also use their example to strengthen us. Lord, we thank you that we are one with them. We pray that you would strengthen their witness and strengthen ours. Move us to be part of the building of your eternal kingdom, God. We pray that as we make our plans, you would guide our every step. Show us exactly, Lord, how and where you would have us to live and at what places and ways you would have us to give our strength. Teach us, Lord, uh, the whole end of everything that you've given us to manage. May your will be done in our homes. May your will be done in our reaching, not only people who don't know you, but in the next generation. Right now, Lord, we pray for our middle schoolers and our children and those who are serving you by serving them. Lord, we thank you for those who are investing their lives in these lives. And we pray that this, this would be a time where the faith of this emerging generation might even be established in a way that would be relentless and unstoppable. Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege to draw near into your presence. And we pray now you would be with us as we turn to your word, um, that you would speak that fresh, enlivening word that witnesses to the fact that it has come from you, it never changes, and it launches us into a life of adventure and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So good to be with you in this series, Love Revolution. And we've looked at the fact that um, if you love God, if you unleash the force of love in your life, you're not living by law, you're living by this supernatural force. And if it, it was Augustine who said that if you love God, you don't even have to uh, worry about anything else. You can love God and do whatever you want. Um, Jesus said the whole of the law hinges on two things. He made it very simple. The IRS has millions of regulations, right? We have to hire someone. The Old Testament had supposedly 613 commands. Jesus, you know, said, I'm gonna do better than Moses. Moses got it down to 10, two tablets, one loving God, the first four commandments about how to love God, the next six about how to love each other. But Jesus says, I can get it down to two commandments, love God with your all and love your neighbors yourself. And we've seen, we've gone from loving God with our all and looked at what that meant to loving our neighbor, to even uh, loving our enemies, uh, to particularly loving the marginalized, the fatherless, the resourceless, the distressed. And this morning we're gonna look at what it means to love those who don't share our faith. In fact, the reality is, if you're a believer in Christ and you're living deliberately for him, um, you may be the only serious, clearly living out the faith believer that someone knows. Um, it may be shocking to think of that, but it's, it's true that for many people, you may be the only one. And so we're gonna look at what does it mean uh, to actually love the people who don't know Christ? Sometimes they're um, our family, uh, their parents or grandparents or children or grandchildren. What does it look um, to love them. And I'm gonna draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks as kind of a, a called apostle who's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and he extols one mark of love, one of the superpower elements of love. I'm gonna see if you can identify it as we read this passage, but that's what we're gonna talk about today, a particular kind of power of love 
when we are channeling our love to someone who does not know Jesus, who is not convinced Jesus is who he said he is, and how we live our lives in that kind of space. So I'm drawing your attention to uh, 1 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 16. And Paul writes this. He says, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. And here's the part that applies to all of us. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. <laughs> to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. When you think about um, physical fitness, um, they say that there are four categories of fitness. Do you know what they are? Um, the, the first one is one that often, uh, you know, young men get interested in, and that is strength. Just a, this is strength to like lift heavy objects, throw stuff around. Um, strength is one of the aspects. And, and there are superheroes who are like the super strength superheroes. Uh, then uh, another element of fitness is speed. It's something that fades over time. I can tell you as a, as a runner, it has moved to jogging, to kind of shuffling and moving, but, um, but speed is one of the elements. And, and then one that I also can feel is fading a little bit is endurance, strength, speed, endurance. That's the ability, maybe not to go fast, but to be able to go long. I think of like long days in the backyard, working in your yard, or uh, long days, a marathon runner, right? Um, so it's speed, um, uh, strength, uh, endurance, but I've left one out. And that one is flexibility, <laughs> you know, being able to stretch, right? And so if I were to ask you, and I, in all honesty, like if you could have one to perfection, <laughs> like a number you might choose speed, you want to run the 60-yard dash, you want to be able to be so fast, you want to be Steve Prefontaine, you want to be able to uh, astound people with that, or you want strength, or you want endurance. But I would say the language of love is the language of flexibility. We don't think how important flexibility is, but love is flexibility. In fact, you could say that Paul uh, maybe gives short shrift to um, strength when he says that when he wanted his preaching to have power, what actually happened? He said, I was present with you in weakness and trembling <laughs> because God's power is perfected in weakness. So his power is not found in strength. Um, when, uh, 
we might admire endurance, like the ability to just power through something. The Bible actually teaches that God gives um, renewal to the faint. Those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. Um, so we can get in our own sense of endurance can get in the way. Uh, and, and speed, the Bible doesn't really glorify speed. You know, like sometimes I wanna like, let's get things done, let's get things done really fast. That is about to be a train wreck with everybody I meet. <laughs> you know, when you are in a hurry, um, you are gonna be that person in the line at McDonald's who you do not wanna have a relationship with. <laughs> um, when you are in a hurry, uh, you are not gonna treat people well. And so Paul said, love is patient, right? It's not in a hurry. We don't have a stopwatch, you know, on other people if we're, if we're in love. But this passage is astounding in its um, exalting flexibility. Um, that flexibility, now this is not just um, being so flexible that you don't believe in anything. Because it's flexibility with a purpose. Paul says, I flex all these areas for what purpose? He says, so that I might win as many as possible. Win them to what? Win them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So what this passage shows us is there is an element of the Christian faith that can never be surrendered, that is true at all times, at all places, at all cultures, for every single person, and that is the saving message of the gospel. They are the, the absolutes, the essentials, we might say the non-debatables of the Christian faith, and they really center on Jesus Christ being who he said he is. Uh, and because, of, and because if that absolute is granted, then we do care about everything else, but it comes out of that. And so Paul said he staked his whole life on being consistent uh, with, with this seeking the good of others. So he's not just Mr. Flexibility without a spine. If you are just, you know, and we've got a lot of that in our world, right? Where people just, they're looking, they stick their finger in the air, see so which way the winds are blowing, and they just want to please the crowds. Paul actually said, and this, this was the verse I put in my office early in ministry, I think my first year in ministry, I put Galatians 1.10, where Paul says, if I were still seeking to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. <laughs> Because I can tell you this, if you, are, if you are a pastor, at least part of the pastor's heart wants people to be happy, but if you actually as a pastor want to please people, you will go as insane as a chameleon on plaid. Um, you, will just, you will just find, there are more opinions about things than there are even people in any congregation, right? So if you are, you, and you will be spineless, even in your witness and approach to people outside of the faith, they won't even respect you because you will be as spineless as a jellyfish that, you know, as far as I know, jellyfish can't swim. They have no arms, right? They just float on the surface of whatever is. There's no respect for that. So Paul says, no, I've got a spine. I've got something that I will go to the mat for. I've got something that I will relentlessly seek to persuade others of. But everything else, while I hold to this firmly in love, everything else I can hold loosely. Because here's what he knew, that the, the God of the Bible entered our culture just like this. In fact, we're gonna close by looking at how these words apply to Christ. But he, he entered our world to love our world, but then to challenge our world and lift our story into another realm. That's what Jesus does, and this is what Paul says he does. So, so the first point really is that you've gotta be firm about what your absolute is in Jesus Christ. But you've also then gotta be flexible 
about all of the ways that that can be packaged and still be faithful. And, and so often, uh, we can get disoriented and confused on this. What we don't flex on is really what makes us most relevant. There are a whole lot of churches and, and there are a whole lot of confused would-be Christ followers who have become irrelevant because they've been chasing relevancy. <laughs> um, if you chase relevancy, you will be extremely irrelevant. You will have no core. Um, Rick Warren, who's had like 40 years of faithful gospel ministry, uh, said these apt words in a recent interview. He says, I have found in looking for evangelistic hooks for what will bring someone to a saving relationship, I have found that it's most helpful to focus not on how to be relevant, but on what's not going to change. He says, because I can tell you 30 years from now what's not going to change. God's promises are not going to change. God's character is not going to change. God's love is not going to change. Human nature is not going to change. And even 30 years from now, no matter what kind of technological advances there may be, uh, and it may look like a very totally different world, people will still be lonely. People will still get bitter. People will get angry. People will have relational problems. They'll be encountering their brokenness and their sin, and they'll be laden with guilt, and they will need the good news of a Savior who bore uh, their griefs and carried their sorrows. So the only way to be eternally relevant is to focus on eternal things, the things that will never, ever change. But the packaging the cultural packaging of that precious content that we must remain steadfastly linked to, that packaging can and must change in the service. And that's just why Paul says, I became a slave to everyone, all kinds of cultures, so that I could win everyone to that which never changes. And Paul was criticized for this. Churches looked at Paul and they said, we, we don't think this guy has a backbone. We think he's wishy-washy because he's in one place. You know, he's quoting the poets and philosophers on Mars Hill. Uh, when he's in another place, he actually takes a Nazarite vow, got his head shaved and went under a special fast because he needed the cultural credibility to go into a very Jewish culture. And then at another place, he says, if you submit to the Jewish rituals, then the cross of Christ has no effect because it was not a culture of submitting to Jewish rituals. It was a proclamation of this is how you're right with God. And Paul says, I will oppose that with all of my might. So people looked at him and they said, we don't understand this guy and how he is moving. And I want you to see that there are, there are four elements that Paul labels here that kind of cover the whole universe of every single person you know. And if you're not a Christ follower yet and you're here this morning, we're so glad you're tuning in and you're here, but you will fit into one of these categories that Paul lists here. It's so brilliant, this passage. And the first category that Paul mentions is that he became all things to be like this category to reach all, is he says, to the, the Jew, uh, I became like a Jew. Now, this is kind of interesting, Paul, because you're already a Jew. <laughs> What do you mean that you, you became a Jew? And he's, what, what I think he's saying is, he's saying, I don't hate the culture I came from. You know, there is no culture that we're part of that God wants us to say, hate your culture. Um, hate the, the reality around there. I mean, even, we can hate the sin in our culture, but to hate the culture is like hating the atmosphere that we're breathing. 
Uh, and, and so culture has God's fingerprints all over it. And even though uh, the Jewish faith is simply a vehicle that God, he formed it in parts, but in other ways, it took on a life of its own. And Paul says, I'm gonna communicate within that culture. I'm gonna communicate within the culture that I'm living in. And sometimes the church has blown it in that. Where we look, at, we look like people who hate the culture even that we actually live in. Sometimes, because the culture is God's culture and because you cannot really escape the reality of God, our culture is saying things that line up and match with Scripture. <laughs> and we can be thankful for and use those. I, I remember one time I was teaching on marriage uh, and I quoted somebody who's not regarded as a great Christian theologian, uh, but she was aligned with what I was saying. And somebody left the church over it. They were so angry. Um, but I quoted, you may have heard this at a wedding. Um, Beyonce Knowles says, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. And I'm like, hey, Jesus, Moses, and Beyonce all are lined up here. <laughs> and they're saying the same thing. And yeah, no, I'm, and, and so, but here's the problem. Sometimes when Christians have done that, other Christians say, okay, but are you transferring everything that Beyonce Knowles stands for to teach our young people? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I quoted one line. <laughs> I quoted one line, and here's the reality. As, as messed up as popular culture's love songs have been, and they've basically been messed up in every generation, the one thing that secular culture, contemporary culture's love songs get is that everybody is kind of restless for that one relationship that will last forever, that will not be a swinging door relationship, that will not be a throwaway relationship that will never toss them away. And she was getting in on it. There, there are so many places in the culture around us. And so Paul's saying, I don't hate my own culture, uh, but I want to build a bridge from that culture to a saving relationship with God. So we don't, we don't just blend in. We don't burn down the culture, but we want our culture to be a bridge that shows that, that God is the one. So we're not afraid uh, of using the things in our culture that line up. And so Paul said, I'll use the Jewish culture I'm in. I will, I will use that to the Jew I became a Jew to win the Jews. But then he gives a second category. And this, this category are those, he says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though he says in Christ, he's not really under the law. And so what he's speaking of here is a moralist. It seems like maybe to a lot of us that there's less and less of these, but here's the reality. Our hearts look for a way to tell ourselves that we're living right so that we can just live with ourselves. And here he's speaking of someone who, is, who has a moral framework, but who does not have Jesus. And he's saying, I, I in a sense, became like that, though I'm, that, that's not my orientation, but I, be, I became like that so that I could win them to Jesus. And what he's saying here is not that he left his faith in Jesus, but he's saying, I identified with them. I identified with their need to be right, with their need to have a life that made some kind of moral sense. And I leveraged that to point them to the fact that they could only ultimately rest in the arms of Jesus. So he's speaking of those who have even religion, but who don't have Jesus. There's so much of that. I can tell you as a preacher, there is, so, there is such a stubborn reflex in us to find religion and to exclude Jesus that I have been in situations where I have, I thought I had given some of my best efforts to preach on how we are desperately lost without hope except for Jesus Christ. I remember an early wedding that I did 
uh, where the couple were living together uh, as I met them and then decided in the midst of the premarital counseling to not only give their lives to Jesus, but to separate so that their wedding day would be a day of renewal. And they were excited. They brought all these non-Christian friends into this wedding. Everybody's scratching their heads. What if John and Debbie what has taken over them that they are living in this way? And so I thought I was laying down grace. I mean, I thought I was like channeling Charles Spurgeon in the midst, if you know, like one of my heroes, whatever. And, laying, and afterward, people lined up in the reception and said, you've really encouraged me that I need to pray the rosary every day more. I was like, not my point. <laughs> not what I was after. But, but we sometimes got to get underneath that desperate need where, where our conscience can't run to say, look, I have good news for you. Here's one way you know that, that someone is beginning to understand the gospel who doesn't yet embrace it is when they say, you know what? I don't yet believe it, but I really wish it were true. <laughs> because it is the greatest news that there is. And, and Paul says he would, he would get with people who were morally going along on the outside, like, like the elder brother in the prodigal son. If you know uh, his, what he says to his father uh, as he views his younger um, prodigal brother who's blown it all, wasted the, and squandered the inheritance, he says to his father, he says, all these years I've slaved for you. So he says it like this. Yeah, I've obeyed, I've slaved. And, and here's the reality. He was the lost one. <laughs> it looked like his brother who'd lived a riotous life, is what, what Jesus says of him, was the lost one. But no, it was, the, it was the older brother who'd kept all the rules was really the lost one. His brother had blown it enough so that he could come home. <laughs> I remember a, a pastor friend telling me that a, a very uh, powerful person in his congregation had come to him and confessed that he was under a doctor's treatment because he had lived such a promiscuous life that he had all kinds of, of infections that could not be completely cured in his body. Uh, and he'd lived that, yeah, this super proper life in front of everybody else. And I, I remember the pastor saying that he, he told this fellow, as he finally was transparent about what was really going on in his life, he said, he says, God's answered my prayers because you finally experienced enough failure <laughs> that you can actually hear with your heart the good news that the gospel is sharing. So often it's, it's our obedience that gets in the way. And Paul says, I, I became, I entered their world. I entered their world and I, and I spoke the words of grace to them. And then uh, Paul speaks of this next category. He, he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. So to those who don't have religion, they don't have any moral framework, really. I mean, they're maybe making it up a little bit, you know, uh, uh, a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of John Robbins, a little bit of, you know, <laughs> stitching together some kind of, but it isn't something they're gonna really hold to if it, if it contradicts what they wanna do. Uh, and so he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And then he says, though, though I'm not free from law, I'm under, I'm under God's law in Christ. I have a heart that actually now wants to give itself to God. And he says, I want to win those who don't have the law. Th this can be a complicated thing because you say, wow, we don't have any faith component that is, this isn't like somebody who says, hey, I went to a very formal church and I have this reverence for God. Nope, they're not saying that. This isn't like someone who says, well, I'm a good moral person. I believe in the moral. Nope, they're not saying that. So you're like, wow, there's, there's not a whole lot of common ground. And here's 
Here's the amazing thing. God's fingerprints are still on that person. Uh, when our oldest son was about nine years old, I seized on a moment I'm so grateful for. I took him to hear a fellow named Don Richardson who um, wrote this book, in fact, uh, called Peace Child. Are you familiar with Peace Child? Um, Peace Ch some of you are. Peace Child is the um, true story that Don Richardson and his wife uh, tell of their years in Papua New Guinea. And when they landed in Papua New Guinea, they encountered a tribe that was like this. They did not have the law. <laughs> they did not have a religion that regarded uh, one unique being. And so they lived among this people. They took their one-year-old son and they entered into Papua New Guinea and they set up a camp there. Um, and they began to minister the gospel by learning the language and the stories of the people. And finally, they got to a point where... Richardson could tell them the story of Jesus Christ. And when he told them the story of uh, Jesus Christ coming as the Redeemer and then uh, walking them through the Gospels and telling them about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, the people cheered Judas Iscariot. Not exactly the result the missionary wanted. <laughs> and they formed like a Judas Iscariot fan club type religion because the number one value in this tribe that was called the Sawi tribe of Papua New Guinea was treachery, to have a fake friendship with someone and then ultimately stab them in the back. And they saw Judas as this amazing hero. Uh, and, as he, and as they talked to him, the, he learned from the Sawi people, they said, you know, we were gonna do this to you because we've been really nice to you. But the reason we didn't do that to you, the reason we didn't stab you in the back is because when you and your wife came here, you had a one-year-old. And in our tradition, when someone brings a baby into a community, that baby may be what we call, and they had a, a word in their language, maybe what we call a peace child. He said, well, tell me more. He says, well, a peace child is when two warring tribes, and there was a lot of cannibalism and violence going on between all these different tribes, decide to make peace. And in fact, one day Richardson said he heard this mother screaming and wailing. And when he went to ask her what happened, he said, they took my baby out of my arms and they have dropped my baby in another tribe to try to make peace. Because what they would do is they'd say, if we trade babies across tribal lines, then we will no longer war and act like cannibals against each other's tribes because we will have a vested interest of love in that tribe. And so they, Richardson said, peace child, a child given from one kingdom to seek to bring that kingdom into a reconciled relationship with him. Where have I heard this storyline before? And he retold the gospel as God Almighty sending his peace child, Jesus. And when they got to the point of the, the betrayal and the crucifixion, the people grew loud in outbursts of saying, this is horrible, this is atrocious. How could they ever war against the one who gave them a peace child? And when he then preached the gospel that this is what God had done in Jesus Christ, the entire tribe repented of their sins and came forward and wanted to be baptized and was established as a Christian tribe. It is, it is an amazing story, you know that story. Because he found that there is a cultural key because we cannot escape the very fingerprints of, of God upon us. And that peace child concept became the key to unlocking what was already nurtured in the hearts of the people that Don Richardson was serving. 
Now, I don't know, I don't know what the peace child key is in terms of, there's not like just a, I think usually a one word or one statement, but here's what I know. The power of the gospel has been told us by Jesus Christ because he says, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all peoples unto me. And when people understand that the message of the cross manifests a God whose heart is restless, seeking us, pouring himself out in self-sacrificial love to reestablish a relationship with us, it has melting power over every kind of condition of person. When people get to the understanding that this is the core, you see, we're not arguing about morality. We're certainly not arguing ab about political preferences. We're not arguing about all these other things that are cultural manifestations. We're saying that there is one thing that we are committed to, and that very core of it is the self-giving love, the self-substituting love of God. That the gospel can be understood in this way, that we, in our sin, try to put ourselves in God place, God's place, a place we never deserved. And in response to that, you'd think that God would judge us, smack us down, um, um, smite our arrogance. No, that's not what God did. When we substituted ourselves out of arrogance in the place of God, what God did in the, in, out of humility and love, he substituted into himself into the place he never should have come uh, to go all the way to the cross. And when that story is understood and told credibly, lovingly, passionately, it unlocks the defenses. And this is why Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw people from all the world to me. And, and it is why, here's what we know that I don't think Paul's hearers in 1 Corinthians knew, and that is 2,000 years of proclaiming this message. In every single kind of culture, every single kind of educational status, literate, PhDs, illiterate, doesn't matter. Um, wealthy, billionaires, millionaires, impoverished, homeless, doesn't matter. Um, when this message is proclaimed, it produces the same effects, effects of a heart set free of a burden lifted off our shoulders of a new purpose in life and a new joy and a new confidence and a felt sense that this is the one reality of the whole universe. And we've lived long enough through the centuries to see that when this message is, is unlocked and, and freed from cultural trappings and from the confusion of other messages that sometimes can come against it and it simply is set free in its purity, we, we see the power of what Paul was saying. This text, um, it's actually been done. And so he says, to those without the law, I became like that. But there's one more category, one more category that, that he lists here. And I, I find this really fascinating uh, that he, he lists this one. He says, to the weak, I became weak. So you see where he's taking it so far? He says, to the Jew, I came like a Jew, my own culture. Um, to those with the law, I became like those with the law, but without Christ, and showed them how they needed Christ. To those without the law, they didn't have a moral framework, they didn't have a relationship with Christ, I became like them so that I could point them to Christ. I entered their story sympathetically. And the, the next category is kind of, he says, to the weak, I became weak. Because I think this, this is a universal, if we're really honest. <laughs> None of us really holds our destiny in our hands. The, the air that we breathe, the Bible says, it's, it's your creator gives you the breath that's in your nostrils. The creator sustains your heartbeat. He, uh, he gives us a heartbeat until he places his hand on our heart and says that's the last beat. There's a sense in which we all know that. And at times, though, we know it uh, 
painfully and really, and he says, to the weak I became weak. And what does this mean? Paul had an endless supply of, he had an endless supply of empathy. When he saw someone struggling, and I would say Paul did it imperfectly, but the one who had truly an endless supply, Jesus, when Jesus saw someone suffering, he did not see them outside of the circle of his love. He saw them inside the circle of his love. Uh, there's a book I came to love by um, psychology professor Richard Beck, who's at Baylor University. And um, he's a Christian professor of psychology, and he gives his students an exercise about empathy and who's on the inside, who's on the outside. And he says, imagine this scenario, and you can imagine for yourself. Imagine that your very best friend just got a job waiting tables at a restaurant. And to celebrate with your friend, you decide to get all your mutual friends together and go to that restaurant um, on his very first night waiting tables. And you ask to be seated at his section, and you look forward uh, to when um, your friend serves you, and you're going to leave your friend an amazing tip as a group of friends, right? Can you envision that? Uh, I'm making you hungry already. Uh, and um, so you get there, and your friend says, um, hey, things are going really badly. Uh, the cook is behind on orders. We had a whole bunch of parties come in that are crazy. So if you don't mind, see, I, I'll sit down. I'll, I'll bring you some appetizers, but it's going to take a while to get your order in. And if you can just hang tight, um, what would you do in that situation? I think virtually all of us would find it pretty effortlessly. We'd say something like this. We'd say, don't worry about us. Take care of everybody else first. Um, just relax, right? Isn't that what we do to our friend? It isn't even really a struggle unless you're just a really horrible person and you need to repent. Um, but it isn't really a horrible struggle. Why? Because that waiter is your dear friend on, one of, on their first night in a hard situation and you have an immediate connection of empathy with them. But imagine if they weren't your friend. Imagine you go for a special celebration with your family, it's an important birthday or anniversary or something, and your server, you, you notice seems a little bit stressed out, but they perform really poorly, and you don't get good service, and your orders are confused, and they're late, and they don't all come at the same time, and, and what do you do? Man, you are ready to write that nasty Yelp review, you are ready to talk to the manager, you're ready to complain to the manager or maybe even refuse to tip such poor service because that server isn't even really a human being to you. And you see, we're susceptible to put someone outside the circle uh, and to move toward them in either indifference, fear, or frustration. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel says there is no one really on the outside because there's no one who has a special status on the inside. This is what Paul could say. He could say, I don't deserve the incredible grace and favor of God. And so when I am out making that grace and favor known to other people, I can approach them with that same sense that it cleanses us of this, this entitlement sense that makes us feel that the world is waiting on us. And it turns us into those who've been lavishly given grace to pour out to others. This is what Paul says. Um, and and this, is, this is why this ending, and I want to say the ending of this text, I always thought Paul changed topics and was talking about a battle with his own sin or whatever. He's not changing topics here. He's saying that this flexibility for the gospel 
is a hallmark of whether you've really understood the gospel. If, if, if we at CLC are serious about the gospel, then we're running a race. And we want to run it in a way that we get um, that prize. And he describes it as that runner, uh, not running aimlessly. Everyone who competes goes into strict training. We, they do it in athletics to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last. And so he says, don't run like someone running aimlessly. Don't fight. You know, a boxer doesn't just throw their arms around. It's all strategic. And, and so he's saying he's not running. No, no, you know, sprinter zigzags across the lines. They run with efficiency. And he's saying that when the gospel has gripped our lives, we are willing to get rid of anything uh, that doesn't serve that purpose. So he says this, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. I don't follow my own preferences. I don't just do things that make me comfortable. I'm willing to leave this, my comfort zone so I can get in gospel communication zone. I keep in the gospel lane. And I am always in that lane because I am always a person who has received a lavish amount of grace that that's what I'm ready to give out. I'm, I have a one-track mind. And that is that God wants me to be an instrument of winning lost people to him. They may be moral and lost. They may be immoral and lost. They may be religious and lost. It doesn't really matter if they don't have Christ. I've got a one-track mind. And I am willing to jettison, sacrifice, put on hold, um, put in a, another planetary dimension all my aspirations that don't fit with this one. I want to make Jesus Christ known. Because when we are understanding who Jesus is, um, this is what we know we've received. You see, the, the essence of this kind of flexibility, and I want you to think of people who you love. If you're a believer, think of people that you love who right now do not do not love and receive and walk with Jesus Christ. And simply ask yourself, do they understand, they may have stumbled at some of the trappings, at secondary issues that flow out of embracing Christ as Lord and not understand the most important thing is that they could come to recognize the saving work of Jesus Christ. When we enter a conversation, we exalt that and we trust that once they come to the power and the reality of realizing that, um, God will move in all the other areas. I'll give you another example. One of, one of um, the astounding movements in sub-Saharan Africa was when David Livingston went. He was both an explorer and also a missionary. And as he gave out the gospel and conducted his life, he entered a culture that was completely given over to multiple wives I don't know why it wasn't multiple husbands, it was multiple wives. Uh, and this was how they lived, and yet uh, a number of them had come to be fully convinced that Jesus Christ was the redeemer of their souls and lives and the Lord of the universe, and they wanted to be baptized. And one of them was a head chief who had eight wives that were known in the community. And... Um, he actually had heard that the wives and the families of the wives, if you know how this works, they all have their different huts and different descendants, were coming uh, with animal entrails and other things to throw at the chief when he was baptized 
because they viewed him as turning his back on at least seven of the eight wives, right? And the chief comes to David Livingston and he says, do I need to renounce all the wives or all the wives but one before I am baptized? David Livingston said something very wise. I think it was very profound. It shows a great trust in the gospel. David Livingston says, I've come to proclaim Jesus Christ to you and you are gonna have to sort out your duty before your conscience and before God on this great question. I can give you the scriptures, but you sort it out. And because he did that, this chief went deep, deep, deep into wrestling before God. He was not simply in a knee-jerk reaction say, this is the rule, okay, I will ritualistic, robotically respond and do this thing. And as he wrestled before God, he says, I have a responsibility to all of these women, seven of whom I should not have added to my list and all of their descendants, I'm gonna take care of them and assure them of that first. So he disarmed all the hostility and I am going to proclaim my allegiance to Jesus Christ, the great bridegroom of my soul. And he moved in this way because he was given the space to let God be God and let God speak to him uh, and bring clarity on this issue. And I wanna say, we need that kind of faith in the astounding power of the gospel today. That we are not afraid to strip it down and to say, the only reason you will care about the implications that Jesus teaches us about how we should live our lives is when you become utterly convinced that he is who he says he is. And then that conversation is real, prevailing, and powerful. Um, this, is, this is the flexibility that trusts God. This is the flexibility that knows things that are of ultimate priority and of the things that require patience, trust, time, and exposure, and conversations. And when this kind of confidence is unleashed and Christ is lifted up, then we will see all sorts of people and backgrounds come to the same unified profession that Jesus Christ indeed is worthy, as the song says, he's worthy of it all, worthy of our whole life, worthy of our every decision and inclination being laid at his feet. Um, let's bow together. Our great God, we thank you that when Jesus came, he came entering our world identifying with the story we're living but lifting us up to live a new story challenging the story we were living without him and attracting us to yield ourselves to him to live the story with him it's such a better story the story of Jesus in our life makes far more sense than any faithless story that we could live and you have given us that story for ourselves and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to make that story known to those who live without you. Lord, I would just want to lead us in a time where we pray for those names and faces that we love the most who right now are not living for you. Father, we lift them up. We pray that their objections, their notions, the resistance to whatever thwarts the power of the message of Jesus Christ might be melted under the reality of his self-sacrificing love. 
We ask, Lord, you would make us effective emissaries of that, that we would be flexible on every point except this one point of Jesus Christ and his supremacy, who he is, what he has done, what he will do for anyone who calls upon his name in sincerity and truth. And Lord, we pray that we might become that kind of witness holding firmly what can and shall never be changed and holding with flexibility all those other things, some of them good and right and others of them simply preferences. We ask, Lord, you would condition us in this way and that you would receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we invite you to stand and sing this last song with us. How great this love, oh, it's moving on the mountains, and this perfect
voices, church. I know my God is love. And I know my God is love. And I know my God is love. This is enough to know my God is love. rest there. Our God is love. I want to pronounce a benediction over you and ask you to receive that, but then um, rescue our child workers. Be good to them. And for those who are part of CLC regularly, we'll have a very brief, I think, congregational meeting to receive your nominees for our nominated committee. So uh, lift up your hearts now uh, to this, our great God, who is love in his very nature. From Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.